I'm Josh Hammer. I'm Emily Jashinsky. I'm Ben Weingarten. And I'm Rachel Bovard. And this is Knock on Squad, where common good and common sense meet. Knock on Squad is produced by the Edmund Burke Foundation, the home for national conservatism. Subscribe now on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. So welcome back, everyone. As is our custom here on this program, we have a diverse and well-rounded show for you right now. So Ben will kick us off with the latest sordid news from the John Durham probe. Igor Danchenko has been acquitted much to all of our chagrin. Uh, then I'm going to talk about kind of the impending 2022 midterm elections. From my perspective, it's starting to take shape a little bit. We'll see if the, if the panel agrees with me. Then Emily's going to talk about John Oliver's trans monologue. And then Rachel will talk us, uh, Rachel will take us home, I should say, with the latest news from across the pond and the 44-day premiership collapse of Prime Minister Liz Truss. But let's kick it over to Ben to start us off with Igor Danchenko. Yeah, I think the latest news from the seemingly wrapping up John Durham special counsel unites those on the left and right who likely both believe that the Durham special counsel was a dud uh, for different reasons, naturally. And yeah, I think it's worth looking at this at a very high level before we jump into the specifics of the Denchenko case in terms of what the Durham prosecution has done and where it's going. So it's brought cases against three individuals to this point. One, all small fry relatively in the scope of the Russiagate slash Spygate scandal. You had Kevin Kleinsmith, an FBI attorney who doctored an email that was used to perpetrate a fraud on the FISA court and spy on the Trump campaign. He was charged uh, with, for doctoring that email, but he got less than a slap on the wrist, basically. The second one was Michael Sussman, Clinton campaign lawyer, who essentially lied to the FBI in terms of who he was representing when he brought Trump Russia garbage dirt to the FBI and then a whole slew of other agencies as well. And as we know, a D.C. jury refused to convict him when he clearly lied about who he was representing when he brought that information. And that had material consequences, arguably, for the FBI and the government itself. Last but not least, then we have Igor Denchenko. Igor Denchenko, I guess, relatively was maybe the biggest fry of a series of small fries here in that he was essentially the key source that built the garbage steel dossier which though the press neglects this, omits it, and obfuscates on it, was the core document that underpinned the entire notion of Trump-Russia collusion on which the effort to spy on Trump was based and a whole series of investigations accelerated. That document, as we know, the FBI's top analyst on the case could never corroborate any of it. Danchenko was the one behind it. Danchenko lied about several things, allegedly, to the FBI in terms of who his sources were and the facts associated with it. And yet Danchenko himself was acquitted on several charges of giving false statements. What are the big takeaways here beyond the fact that it's notable that Durham went for these small fries and then essentially used these speaking documents to lay out that actually it wasn't these individuals who, who were really the most culpable actors in foisting a fraud on the American people, one of the biggest scandals ever, but he actually used them as a window into the government's own malfeasance, misconduct, and negligence. Well, look, in the Denchenko trial, there were some interesting revelations, just like there were in other ones. For example... And a hat tip to Technofog, because he summarized many of these at his Substack. 
Now, the FBI obviously made Denchenko an informant after they knew he was a liar and paid him $200,000 to keep his mouth shut for about three years during the pendency of the various Trump-Russia investigations, also shielding him from scrutiny that would have shown the malfeasance of the FBI in continuing to pursue Trump-Russia. Also, the FBI offered his boss, Danchenko's boss, Christopher Steele, a million bucks to corroborate aspects of the Steele dossier prior to the election. This is in October 2016. He turned them down. The FBI also covered its eyes and ears with respect to various aspects of Danchenko's past, including the fact they had opened up an espionage uh, inquiry into him based upon his dealings with foreign agents, as well as what he came to apparently Brookings Institute's colleagues with about potentially spying on their behalf or brokering some sort of spy agreement. And then the Miller, the Mueller special counsel itself covered its eyes and ears with respect to all sorts of defects around Denchenko. So look, many interesting revelations here, but I think the key point to make is that the government's posture, so-called the government's posture via Durham has always been that it was the government that was duped. So in the Sussman case, one of the prosecutors there in the opening of the case said this, quote, we are here because the FBI is our institution. It should not be used, that is manipulated, as a political tool for anyone, not Republicans, not Democrats, not anyone. Now, Durham, at the end of the Denchenko case, seemed to reflect some sort of growth in the government's posture. He said this, the FBI failed here. That's point blank, blank quote. It mishandled the investigation and agents didn't do what they should have done. He also opined that the FBI could have been simply incompetent, his words, or that it had been working in coordination, presumably with the Clinton campaign. Okay, he should know by now, after years of investigating this, whether it was incompetence, uh, coordination and collusion, a conspiracy, and whether charges should have been brought against all of these government officials implicated in all of these filings that he's put forth for years. The fact that he isn't, I think, is a huge red flag, I think, about the credibility of the entire investigation. And it seems that it's going to culminate in some kind of report where hopefully he's put on record as to why he did not bring all these charges against government officials for foisting the greatest scandal on the American people that we've ever seen with the national security apparatus spying on its political foe in all sorts of terrible ways and lawbreaking and corrupt ways. So at the end of the day, you know, I think the question of the Durham special counsel is this. Was the fix in from the start? And he was essentially a captured element of the deep state poised to investigate the deep state to provide cover because everyone knew how corrupt Russiagate slash Spygate was. So this was all an optics exercise. Or did Durham do the best he could, given the fact that no one's going to win in trying to take on the House? You know, you have juries that are essentially regime juries that will never convict all the regime actors. And the best he could do was expose the regime's corruption by proxy through these cases. Open to your thoughts on it and then to what comes next. Are we going to have a church committee? Do we hear any Republicans talking about it? I'd uh, love to hear your thoughts on all the takeaways associated with Durham. So I think to one of your questions, is Durham an op? I mean, I think all these people are psyops, so the answer is always yes from my point of view. But I do think this raises an interesting question because what we need out of all of this, right? The meta narrative of everything you're talking about is accountability. No one has been punished. No one has gone to jail. Even the FBI lawyer who I, I cannot get over the fact that he lied to a FISA court and is just walking around and, and uh, still a, a member of the bar in good standing. That just blows my mind. But I think this is the question for Republicans going forward. These investigations, these special counsel things are not working. So they have two choices. Oversight is one, and I think you'd have to have the level of a church committee investigation, and that doesn't require just saying it 
and signaling about it, it requires hiring a massive amount of talented staff to actually dig into this. It requires putting their back into it with resources. And I've heard a lot of rhetorical commitment to these things. I have not yet seen the commitment on ground level resourcing. But two, if anyone's going to go to jail, Congress is going to have to impeach people right? Like the special counsels aren't going to do it. There has to be a, I think at this point, the only people who can hold these types of criminals, right? If that's what they are accountable has to be Congress. Congress has to do the impeachment exercise. That's the only way I see actual accountability going through here. Just really quickly, what I'll say is the difference between, and Rachel knows this, the difference between the church committee and now is the media, or or one big difference between the era of the church committee and, and right now is that we now have a media that is essentially in bed with the left and with the Democratic Party and is basically a partisan advocacy apparatus. And so a church committee, I'm also so, like, so pessimistic about because to me, it seems with the Danchenko trial wrapping up and the way that the entire Sussman, um, the entire Durham probe has been treated by the media is that it's unserious and that this is sort of a big flop for the right when in fact actually I think a lot of revelations did uh, emerge as a result of this trial as a result of the Sussman trial we did learn a whole lot more information and I think partially that was the goal so it, it to me it's like well we can have a church committee and then it, it just sort of goes out into the ether unless you have a media that is willing to bring it to the public's attention and treat it seriously and as the grave sort of uh, probe that it would be. Um, and so not to be, I don't know that I can out pessimist Rachel, but I feel like maybe I just did. <laughs> can I just add one quick thing before we take, take to Josh? I think the January 6th committee has been a case study in how to do this, right? I hate everything the January 6th committee has done, but they did primetime hearings, right? They dragged people at, they leaked like crazy, if this is how we're going to do things, if this is how we have to get in front of the public, I guess this is what we're doing now. Okay. Sorry. That was it. No, I'll be real quick. I mean, Ben, you're one of the foremost experts in the country from my perspective on all things Russiagate related. So I don't think any of the three of us or really very few people out there in general can kind of question, I think, your instincts on this. So, I mean, what I said in my Fox Business head on this topic this week, which is partially informed by your insights, Ben, which I think, you know, I probably texted you beforehand. From, from my perspective, the fix did partially seem in. And I think what you're going to see from John Durham in his final report is basically say that we have reached the dead end, legally speaking, and the remedy has to happen politically speaking. And I guess as like a lawyer with a constitutional law specialty, the analogy that I make is the U.S. Supreme Court has a, a, a juridical doctrine referred to as uh, the political question doctrine. There, there are some questions that kind of come up that are so inherently political by nature, and there was no such thing as a legal kind of Article Three remedy. There's no such thing as a damage or an injunction or an estoppel or anything that the court can do. The remedy has to happen from the political branches. By way of crass analogy, I think that's basically more or less what John Durham's getting at here. If you, you know, if you if you look at his statements in the final days of the Danchenko trial. I mean, he said that, you know, quote, the FBI mishandled the case. He said his special counsel team was not there to defend the FBI. He had been very, very critical, obviously properly, of the way that the FBI's handled this. So I think at this point, our our best bet is to wait for that final report. You know, to Rachel's point, obviously, then, you know, what what does Congress actually do with that report? I mean, I tend to agree that impeachment, which is kind of the quintessential political remedy, I mean, there's no, there is no political remedy kind of higher and more powerful and more awesome in the literal sense of the word awesome than the impeachment remedy. So if that's what this is ultimately getting at, then I, then I guess that's kind of a cause for hope. That's a silver lining. Obviously, Republicans tend to talk a lot of big games 
or, or, or they tend to talk a, a big game on this topic. And oftentimes there is very little in the way of results. But uh, let's transition now. Um, I, I guess it's actually kind of a natural transition talking about how Republicans kind of talk a lot and then oftentimes don't actually follow through. Um, so the midterm elections are coming up very soon. By the time this podcast comes out, we'll probably be about two and a half weeks or so away, maybe even a little less than that. And, you know, I, I guess my reading on this, I, I think back to kind of over the summer. So Joe Biden's approval rating hit rock bottom in the month of July. It was kind of like mid to late July. I think there was there was some polling, maybe Quinnipiac or Emerson had him polling around 31 to 33 percent job approval rating. And then what it was a little odd from late July to, to to late August, the Democrats seemed to get a little wind at their back. I think some of us, um, you know, firmly in kind of the pro-life Dobbs was correctly decided camp, perhaps at least at that time, I had not properly anticipated the extent of at least the short term emphasis on short term blowback in the Dobbs case. You know, we saw the, the um, did very disappointing results in, in, a, in a red state like Kansas when there was a pro-life um, re referendum to amend the Constitution to remove a, a, a so-called natural right to abortion from that state's Constitution. There were some special elections in Nebraska, Minnesota, and New York state that seemed to militate in Democrats' favor. And Biden's approval rating did slowly trickle up from from kind of that historic July era low of 37 to kind of kind of nestling in kind of the 41 to 43 range by the end of August. And then by the end of August, uh, heading into Labor Day weekend in September, Biden had this galling, I mean, a horrific speech in Philadelphia that we have covered on, on this podcast before. And more generally speaking, it seems to me, and I'm not entirely sure what this is attributable to, to be honest with you, but it seems to me that kind of the median American kind of just went home, kind of just went home to politics 101. And over the course of the past month, month and a half or so, the polling, I think, has clearly, clearly events that there are far more Americans right now who are willing and eager to vote on issues of, of economy, inflation, crime, maybe to a lesser extent, immigration, although even in some crosstabs, now immigration is actually polling as a, as a more a powerful issue at, at the ballot box for most voters than the abortion issue. So, you know, earlier this week, there was a New York Times poll. Uh, the Republicans were up four points on the generic ballot, 49 to 45. And, you know, a whopping 44 percent of voters, 44 percent said that economic related issues were their main driving force at the polls. I think it was like 28 percent cited the economy and another eight or another 16 percent or something like that uh, cited inflation. So it, it seems like the Dobbs abortion backlash was incredibly short-lived. That, that, that's kind of why I think you see Joe Biden kind of getting up there trying to recapture this post-Dobbs magic by saying that his number one priority next term is going to be to quote-unquote codify Roe versus Wade, which everyone on the show knows you know, is, is a genuinely extreme position because they will take the so-called mental health exception and extend it to effectively legalize abortion for all nine months of pregnancy, all, all, all nationwide. So I guess what I'm getting at at this point, and, you know, far be it for me to kind of be the bearer of good news, but I, I'm starting to feel pretty good. I'm starting to feel like pretty optimistic that Republicans actually could win a lot of potentially nearly all of these toss-up races. So, uh, you know, states like Nevada, um, Arizona, Georgia, Georgia race has gotten a lot of headlines, of course, over the past couple of weeks with all the woes from from Herschel Walker. It seems to me like Brian Kemp could definitely pull Herschel Walker over the finish line there. I'm starting to think very similarly about Blake Masters in Arizona with Carrie Lake starting to pull as well as she is pulling uh, versus her opponents there. 
So I, I don't know. I mean, um, I, I guess I'll just kind of throw it open on that note. I mean, like, do you guys kind of share my optimism, my optimism for the Republican Party in the midterms at this point? And the related kind of corollary to that question is if Republicans do actually retake the House and the Senate to kind of go back to our last segment and the Durham probe and impeachment and all these subpoenas and everything. What should they do? I mean, what should the agenda actually be? Because I think, you know, Kevin McCarthy's kind of five bullet point agenda, as we discussed on this program, is not particularly inspiring. But, you know, I'll, I'll throw it up to you guys on that note. I was going to say, actually, it's like some shameless self-promotion here of a piece, um, which uh, Rachel is quoted and coming out on what McCarthy might do and what you maybe he should do more of uh, come January if Republicans win. Now, the, on the question. One of the biggest problems here is how terrible our polling is. <laughs> you know, you have really close races in Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Arizona, and we basically have not updated. The polling industry has had since 2016 um, to make dramatic changes. And now they're sort of still looking around and saying, why do we still suck, basically? You know, what, why are we still falling so, failing so much to accurately gauge what's happening in these races? So if I had to err on the side of the polls, uh, uh, I, I would err on them being uh, underestimating Republican support in most of these races. And in most of these races, Republican support has increased over the course of the last month. And the races have tightened to the point where many of them, Pennsylvania, for instance, are probably within the margins of error. So I think, you know, it has been a, as, as, as the economy, gas prices have gone back up again since the summer um, and abortion has sort of faded to the background, no matter how much Democrats keep trying to run on it. Um, Inflation only feels like it's getting worse to the average consumer. The consumer price index is up an incredible amount of money. That is what people are voting on right now. Um, and that isn't to say the culture war issues aren't salient, because they absolutely are, but salient to the point where as Republicans can neutralize the Democratic attacks on abortion as they have by saying, okay, well, what restrictions does Mark Kelly support? What restrictions does John Fetterman support? What restrictions does the President of the United States support? And when they answer nothing, um, you get you know, like that viral video of the Washington Post, uh, the, the Washington Post interview of a girl in Pennsylvania, I think she was at a Steelers game saying, well, I think de like Democrats are, are way too extreme on this issue. Um, and they're the ones that are sort of out there. And I trust Republicans on the economy. So I, I think Josh's instincts are completely correct on this. Um, but the polling is very frustrating. Yeah, and shameless plug for uh, uh, RealClear, which is uh, engaging in a new initiative to track the pollsters uh, and basically, you know, do postmortems after every single election. So I think we've all probably baked into uh, all the polls that we see the fact that there aren't representative samples of voters. And then you have the, the shy, uh, I guess, pseudo fascist, semi fascist voter out there at this point, uh, and obviously that skews the polls. But but I do think beyond the movement that we've seen in terms of the generic Republican versus Democrat, and then what we've seen in some of the battleground races, some other bullish data points that we can look to are the shrinking gap in terms of the New York gubernatorial race, which I think on the merits, it should be a slam dunk for a Republican, but obviously not based upon what the constituents are like in the state of New York, although obviously different outside New York City proper than in New York City proper, which has is outsized. Uh, but there's been a serious shrinking in the polls there. Uh, and it's close in part because I think the Republican candidate, Lee Zeldin, Literally, the theory of the case has proven out in his own life when there's been an effort to assault him. And then there was a shooting right outside his house 
with perps hiding underneath, I think, the porch of his house in the run up to the election. I mean, it, it can't get any more blatant than that in terms of the out of control nature of crime in the state. Uh, in Rhode Island, there's a Republican who's actually seriously competing for a House seat. And then even in Connecticut, uh, Dick Blumenthal is facing a serious race and the Democrats establishment is plowing money into his race against a Republican, Leora Levy. I mean, these are about as safe places as can be for Democrats. So if you see movement there, you see resources being plowed into these places. I think it's very bullish for Republicans. It would seem to illustrate that, you know, kind of the bread and butter issues of are you poorer? Are you less safe? Do you feel like your kids are under assault, getting a bad education, being indoctrinated? That that actually has moved people. That bump on abortion, I think, has not played out. It's probably netted out to nothing because you have pro-life people who are animated on the issue. You have the pro-abortion people who are animated on the issue. And in and in many states, it's pretty polarized one way or the other anyway, at least in the places that are most passionate about it. So it's probably not going to show up ultimately in the kind of median states. Um, you know, the last thing I'd say is, you know, what can we expect from Republicans? Um, I'm much more bullish on what happens in terms of the House and the Senate than I am in terms of the substance of what a Republican House and or total Congress might look like. I did see that Kevin McCarthy put out a statement uh, basically saying he's going to de-link a border security from some kind of pathway to citizenship or DACA. Uh, his direct quote is, I believe Biden's destroyed our border so badly, you can't tie the two. You've just got to fix the border to start out before you can deal with immigration. I think this qualifies, I guess, as a win pre-midterms. Let's see what happens post-midterms. But I think the best we can expect, I have very low expectations here, will be that the Republicans will block the worst impulses of the Democrat Party and Joe Biden. And maybe we'll have some bombshell hearings where there are revelations that come out. But I'm, I'm less bullish in terms of the substance of what a Republican Congress will actually look like. So a couple of things that have been interesting um, in the last couple of weeks, you can tell Democrats are flailing by how they're just flinging abortion at everything. <laughs> and this is twofold. One, I think they're flailing, but two, abortion is their religion and they don't know how to turn from it. But it's it's how you get just unbelievable interviews, like the one with Stacey Abrams, I think it was on MSNBC yesterday, where they were like, you know, how do you solve ac the economic, you know, woes facing everyday Americans? And she basically, this is a di the distillation of what she said was basically abort your child. Right. Like, well, the reason people are having economic problems is because they have unplanned pregnancies. That was sort of the the actual way she said it. Um, I saw the Babylon Bee rift it and said the the way to to solve all your bills is to kill yourself. Right. <laughs> That's like the the conclusion of what she's saying. That's so the answer to everything they because they have no actual answer. They're just responding with abortion politics. But there was another interesting poll, you know, taking what Emily said about the polling industry being sort of intellectually bankrupt. But this what we have to work with. There was a New York Times Siena poll that came out this week, interestingly showing that 45% of Americans regard Trump as a threat to democracy, but only 28% say the same about Republicans. And actually 33% view the Democrat party as a threat to democracy, which I kind of think is interesting because that's a total repudiation of the way in which Democrats have run this race, which is to try to paint every Republican candidate as somehow a giant uh, fascist in waiting, right? And they're going to upend democracy. And so I like maybe that's a silver lining. You know, we I always come back to the fact that voters are constantly smarter than people give them credit for. So it's it's positive to see them rejecting that. Um, and, I, you know, I hope it's a it's a trend that continues. But if that does, then I think to Emily's point, we are going to see 
the polls be repudiated in some respect and, you know, potentially Republicans outperforming uh, what we've seen if people are just rejecting the the messaging from Democratic Party. So so let's transition to Emily, but I'll use my moderator moderator's prerogative to add a very, very final capstone on this, which is I saw a poll earlier this week that even on the abortion issue that Democrats are running so, so hard on. There's one poll I saw that by a roughly two to one margin, voters told the poll that Democrats were more extreme and out of touch on that very issue that that they pretend to be kind of like their holy grail than Republicans. So even on their one issue, they seem to be flailing. But let's send it over to Emily to talk about John Oliver. Well, I'm so glad actually that you added that uh, point, Josh, because it's exactly uh, where we're going with this next segment. Now, John Oliver ran a 26-minute repudiation or attempted repudiation of uh, basically bigotry, rank bigotry that he sees coming from the Republican Party um, and the many people across party lines that now oppose the extremism of transgender ideology as it has been implemented into curricula for kids as young as four years old with taxpayer money uh, through high school and then into college in ways that uh, plenty of non-Republicans are panicking about the dangers of because young women are coming out more and more and more saying how it has hurt them how they were basically the effects of this experiment that was run in real time they were the guinea pigs and the results are not good so john oliver comes in runs this 26 minute segment he doesn't have you know a massive audience i think greg gutfeld uh, probably uh, has a has a much bigger audience than he does at this point but he does have a big audience on youtube um his probably a, the big chunk of hbo's business strategy right now is oliver's viral videos on youtube um and that's really important because it lives forever there it's not just sort of broadcast on the show and then goes along um but john oliver on on youtube is a pretty big presence and so there was the viral, the segment went fairly viral. It was in John Oliver's typical um, smug and contemptuous and know-it-all approach to this, to, to uh, rebutting what he sees as bigotry. Um, but of course, he was actually the one that was very, very wrong um, and was giving cover for people that are bigots. It was not funny at all. Um, and it's certainly not funny if you spend much time listening to the stories of people whose bodies have been mutilated while they were still developed, while their brains are still developing, um, and where in fact there is irreversible damage being done at the very least on a scale that we don't know yet how bad it would be. So John Oliver had the audacity to do his usual shtick, condescending to um, and, and criticizing and implicitly calling people bigots, basically, for, for not wanting some of this stuff to happen. And I want to read a segment to the point Josh just made from a post on Colin Wright's Substack uh, that really debunked a lot of the bad science. I mean, Oliver kind of comes in and cherry picks research and does that sort of typical, we saw Jon Stewart do it um, with Leslie Rutledge in an interview just a couple of weeks ago, um, trying to say, well, we have all of the data on our side. You know, it sounds like the climate debate. All of the scientists agree with X, Y, and Z, and your studies are just cherry-picked and nonsense, and that's really what the segment was about in large part. But Colin Wright's um, substack gets into this, and it sort of lists off some of the things that Republicans have done, and then has a graph where it says, 
The Democrats, on the other hand, have passed laws that allow children to medically transition without parental consent, sent CPS after parents who don't socially or medically affirm their trans-identified kids, and attempted to criminalize parents who refuse pediatric gender, gender medical interventions. I think it's safe to call these actions on both sides, quote, effing insane, which is a term Oliver uses several times, but never for Democrats. And that is just an absolutely huge piece of this puzzle. Um, the Substack goes on to say, it's weird that such assertions are swept away as wrong think because yeah, a lot of people on the left are worried about the compelled speech of pronoun announcements and that the left's handling of this issue may cost us the election and with it, our democracy. Why not take that seriously? Okay, so with all of that, um, I want to toss it open to the group because it's a very, very, very good point that John Oliver and the John Stewart's of the world, the sort of smug liberals, um, are who who previously used to be sort of the ACLU liberals, right? Like the civil libertarians who took this stuff very seriously, um, are now sort of coming in to try and change the debate. They've seen that the left is losing. They've seen that more and more people from both sides of the aisle are coming in and saying like, hey, we need to pause because this is uh, basically an experiment that's going awry um, and it's, it's hurting real children. They're coming in now with their nonsense that does remind me a lot of the climate change debate. Um, and I, I think it's gonna backfire. Um, and you know, I think exactly for the reasons that that blog post or the Substack post on Colin Wright's page mentions, like these are very legitimate concerns. They're bipartisan legitimate concerns and you cannot silence the victims that are increasingly, uh, I think, visible in our culture. So I'll toss it open to the group with that. You know, I think it's absolutely true that this is becoming more visible and the stakes and perils of this, you know, are are vastly clearer than they were even a year ago. But what concerns me about this issue is that it's such a lock on elite groupthink, right? It's a case study in, you know, this is just horrific. And the victims are telling their stories publicly. And yet you still have this group of people at the top of the social class, the top of the medical class, which I think is even more concerning, saying that this, you know, this is this is good and anyone who questions it is bigots. And I think I read somewhere too, I honestly can't remember because I'm tired, but because <laughs> um, my kid doesn't sleep. But there was someone who made this point, which I thought was very good, which is that how it's always framed is an LGBTQ issue. But the the T, the LGB is doing a lot of work for the T, when in reality, this is just about the trans issue. It's not about the rest of the movement. So they try to cobble it all into like, oh, you just hate, you know, everybody in this movement if you don't support trans rights. But increasingly, even people in the LGB categories are turning against this and saying there might be a problem here. So I I do hope that the tide is turning. But I also think that um, this is, again, is a case study of elite groupthink, which history has shown is often hard to shake. So I guess I, I have two things that I want to say in, in this segment. So one thing is, I, I can't remember if we discussed it on this podcast. I don't think we did, but there was this remarkable kind of uh, mini parental revolt in uh, what is one of the most Muslim towns in the United States, Dearborn, Michigan, a little over a week ago. And we've, if I can make a shameless plug, we've now published two excellent op-eds on this at Newsweek, one from Siraj Hashimi and one from Max Eden. And they both kind of just talk about the fact that the left is just totally over. They are overplaying this their hand on this issue. They are radically overplaying their hand on this issue. And you don't need to just go to Michigan, obviously. And right here in Florida, where I live, obviously, I mean, you know, the whole DeSantis Disney fight, which we have discussed ad infinitum on this particular podcast, 
you know, that that fight was largely on just the indoctrination of gender ideology. And this issue is just it is increasingly obvious through all these various anecdotal data points that the left, their stance is not nearly as popular as they think it is. And, you know, I, I, if, I, if I could encourage the, the listeners, viewers to check out, I think, Max Eden's op-ed for us at Newsweek in particular, he just – he basically – when Max did this article, he just kind of he, – he quotes. He watched a full three hours of video from this particular school, school board meeting, and he just quotes paragraph-long quotes from these various parents who happen to be traditional Muslims who do not fit, obviously, like the Trump MAGA, white nationalist, Christian nationalist stereotype. And these are people, you know, that are basically that, at that in Dearborn, they were basically listening to a prominent imam who actually encouraged them to go to this meeting to protest this transgender pornography, just general kind of just sexual indoctrination. So it's really interesting stuff. The only other quick point that I want to make, though, is – that if I can tie kind of the last segment to this one, I think it is incumbent upon Republicans not to take the wrong lessons away from the 2022 midterms if it does indeed go as well as I think it does. And what I mean by that is it does appear to be, like, you know, the old Jimmy Carville line, it's the economy, stupid. A lot of voters are going to vote on the economy and inflation to a lesser extent, perhaps crime and maybe immigration. But Republicans cannot forget and should not forget the centrality of the so-called culture war issues because, you know, I, I, as much as kind of the, the leftist economic inflation, money printing, Federal Reserve, blah, 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 as much as that playbook is total gobbledygook, it really is these cultural issues where they are just totally, radically overstepping their hand. And as far as just meaningful wins in the ballot box, Republicans think would be remiss to take away the, the wrong lessons or at least to kind of over-extrapolate the lessons if they cruise to victory in early November on economic issues. Um, so I would also commend uh, our listeners, viewers, to a couple pieces. Uh, Lior Sapir has a piece at City Journal where he just completely destroys John Oliver's entire critique. Well worth reading. Uh, and then Peachy Keenan has a piece, it's pseudonymous Peachy Keenan has a piece over at American Mind. I think it's it's titled something like, uh, it takes a village to take your child. And I think it lays out very clearly the stakes when it comes to quote unquote gender affirming care, which ranges from you know encouraging people by using their preferred pronouns all the way to genital mutilation and double mastectomies. Um, you know, well, well worth reading uh, on that. I think one of the points worth highlighting on this issue, besides the fact that it's very revealing about the left, that some of the left, and granted, there is blowback from liberals and leftists, and even people who would call themselves pro-LGBT on this particular issue. So they're really destroying their own tenuous alliance here, as reflected in Dearborn, but also as reflected in some of the backlash they're facing to quote-unquote gender-affirming care. Uh, what does this say about the nature of the left uh, in terms of trying to create wedges between parents and their children, uh, the assault on parental rights, then the fact that they're willing to use children as experiments here uh, when there is by far not even close to a medical consensus on this issue, despite what the medical establishment is saying? I do think it represents also tactically that you have a whole of regime effort here in terms of blue state executives, the Biden administration, which is using its Justice Department to go after states which dare dissent on this issue, uh, going after Eagle Forum of Alabama in a very chilling way with a subpoena essentially asking for all of their lobbying efforts around the bill in Alabama, which is currently being litigated over by the federal government. DOJ brought suit or was a party to the suit there on Alabama's uh, anti-gender affirming care, so-called policy. 
Uh, but the states here are really a bulwark. And I think this 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 issue in particular really reflects how critical the states are, uh, which I guess is sort of a heartening thing, given that the federal Leviathan, uh, it is, it's sort of assumed has taken over everything, controls via the power of the purse. But here, states really can make a difference. They can be sanctuaries for sanity. And yet you also have a state like California, first of its kind sanctuary state for those children seeking quote unquote, gender affirming care and protection from their parents against it. Uh, this is leading to a very Orwellian, disturbing place. Thank God there are some states that are sane. Uh, but I think this is a burgeoning battle and we're going to see it accelerate in years to come. So this is this is kind of the first word, I think, on this this backlash and the battle that's going on here. But it's certainly not going to be the last. All right. So let's transition to Rachel to take us home by talking about what's happening across the pond in the U.K. Yeah, so we were recording this on um, Thursday morning, and just this morning, um, you had Liz Truss step down as prime minister, I think the shortest uh, time in office of any prime minister in history. They're, the Daily Star in the UK had an ongoing um, timeline saying, will this head of lettuce outlast Liz Truss? And at the end of the day, the head of lettuce won. <laughs> so <laughs> unfortunately for her, but I think it's this is an interesting case study and one worth reviewing. So you had Liz Truss kind of step up in the midst of, you know, turmoil in Britain, similar, but slightly different to what we're facing, you know, a massive energy crisis put forward by what's going on in Ukraine. You have a failing national health system, their infrastructure is collapsing, and the general inflationary, you know, disasters that I think all, a lot of Western countries are dealing with. So you had Liz Trust step into that gap. And sort of instead of putting forward a lot, you know, some short-term solutions designed to stem the bleeding of a very basic, you know, Function, functional government actions that people are are would would need to see right now. She puts forward a budget that uh, I believe is forty eight billion dollars in unfunded tax cuts. Um, they're supposed to be catalyzing economic growth, right? She said, "Oh, they'll pay for themselves via economic growth." And uh, what we saw was the complete opposite. The markets responded by completely crashing. The Bank of, Bank of England had to step in to save pensions. You saw uh, mortgages about to rise on five million families. Just complete you know, collapse of her plan, essentially. And again, you are dealing with uh, uh, people in Britain facing basic, basic issues, like being able to eat and heat their homes and find shelter in the winter. Uh, you And you have Liz Truss walking up to the microphone saying, you know what will solve this? Tax cuts for the rich. So I think what's interesting here is you are, it reflects all the tensions we're dealing with here in the United States, which is, again, you know, She's running on sort of Thatcher era economics, where a lot of uh, Republican politicians here in the United States are running on Reagan era, Ryan era economics, putting that playbook on a completely different set of conditions. And um, Aris Rusinaus over at Unheard had, I think, a beautiful way of framing it. Um, and I'm going to quote from his article from earlier this month called Liz Truss has betrayed conservatism. He says, uh, quote, we've been foisted with a career politician who seems to view the laziest left-wing caricatures of Toryism as a political roadmap, a pure zealot of unrestrained capital with no vision of the good beyond libertarian think tank pamphlets and a burning faith in the might and power of the market's invisible hand. Alas, Truss's faith in the markets is not rewarded by the market's faith in her. The invisible hand has already reached down to flick her from the history books. And I end quote, I think that is just sort of a perfect encapsulation of what's going on here. Um, he later goes on in a different piece to say, you know, the ideologues have crashed, uh, have crashed the conservative party and Britain into a cliff. And I think that's accurate. And so um, 
I think there's a couple of things worth learning from this. Um, the first thing is that, you know, in this climate of upheaval, the focus on long-term growth isn't necessarily the thing here, right? The focus on the GDP when people can't heat their homes isn't solving the problem. And so I think for the next 10 years, if things are going to be as sort of economically rocky and uh, the global order is shifting under our feet, this focus from right-leaning politicians on the link between economic growth and GDP is going to have to be severed. Slow-term growth and a focus on building up the nation for what's about to come, I think, has to be where we focus as a matter of economics. It's unfortunate that we've ended up here. It's unfortunate that we spent the last 20 years uh, diminishing our state capacity to deal with where we now sit, but this is where we are. And the second thing I would say, you know, is that th there are some lessons here for Republican politicians. And I'm it, the, the analogy isn't perfect, but I want to link it to something Kevin McCarthy said this week, which is he told uh, in an interview with Punchbowl News talking about the upcoming debt limit crisis, you know, not crisis, but it will invariably be a crisis. Congress is going to have to decide whether or not to raise the debt limit. McCarthy says, okay, you know, this is a leverage point. I'm going to enter into this debate and I'm going to be pushing for spending cuts. I'm going to be pushing for potentially entitlement reform. He didn't say this, but when asked, are you going to deal with entitlements? He said he he didn't rule it out. And I just think, you know, how it's framed is going to be very important because I think the Republican Party runs the risk of running into a trust situation if they are handed back power. And the first thing they do is, you know, talk about sort of high level fiscal issues, not to say that the debt isn't a problem. We, we are in an inflation crisis, I would argue, because we've overspent you know, vastly. And I think a way in which potentially to frame this is to deal with the massive amounts of money sloshing around in the economy. Maybe we say, okay, we're going to pull back a lot of the, you know, the just billions of dollars that states are just sitting on, right? Maybe we can claw that back. That would be a reasonable way to talk about this. But to go in and say, we're going to reform social security, uh, or, you know, and we're going to attack Medicare, uh, that I think would be we'd walk into a rhetorical situation uh, that trust has sort of the corner she's backed herself into. And I think that speaks to the broader situation that, look, you know, Republicans have to shed their Ryan era economic fixation when you have Americans being threatened with being debanked, you know, when the DOJ is arresting political dissidents in the streets, uh, when you cannot speak into the public space. So uh, these are all things I think we can learn from the trust debacle. You know, if there's a silver lining to it at all, perhaps it is the accelerationist end of it, right? Okay, now we can actually see how these ideas and practice aren't working with these market conditions that we now face. And going forward, as the global order is being reshaped, we need to focus on national resilience. So I'll open it up to y'all. I mean, this was a very fluid situation that we just learned about today. So I'm interested in hearing your takes. So I think that that was really helpful. That was really excellent kind of laying out of the lay of the land, Rachel. I, I, I think the like the broader... 35,000 foot altitude view is in a lot of Western and Western style societies, you're seeing the dwindling in some cases, perhaps even kind of the near outright collapse of these traditional, more venerable, you might say, kind of center right parties at the expense of these rising kind of more national conservative, national populist aligned kind of right wing parties. So the Tories have you know been descending for many years now. The Tories couldn't make up their mind which way they were going to be on Brexit. David Cameron, who was who was the Tory prime minister from 2010 to 2015, 2016, something like that, um, you, you know, he famously kind of ultimately acceded to holding a referendum on Brexit, but he was a defiant remainer. He went on the UK to remain. 
in Brexit. And, you know, that level of disconnect between what the Tory establishment had and what the median Tory voter, really just the median kind of British nationalist, frankly, wanted, saw the rise of, of, of figures like Nigel Farage and UKIP and, and the Brexit Party and things like that. In Israel, to like a slightly lesser extent, um, Likud, which is still kind of the biggest party in in their own parliamentary system, has still nonetheless been been losing some voters over the past um, decade or two to some smaller kind of right wing parties. The upcoming Israeli election on November first, we'll see how strong that trend is. But it, as of right now, it looks like some smaller parties like Smotrich and Ben Gavir's parties um, are, are polling quite well. We'll see if that holds up. So you know, the problem from kind of an American new right, so to speak, perspective is we live in a two-party system, right? I mean, that is kind of like the fundamental difference between the between the U.S. political system at, at like the broadest level and there's various other parliamentary systems, the U.K., Israel, Australia, whatever, that have, you know, a, a much easier time with these smaller parties kind of gaining momentum. So what Rachel said really is the problem. I mean, the problem is, you know, we need to make sure that the GOP moving forward does not over extrapolate to go back to what I was saying on the last segment from their what seems to be an impending victory on economic issues and then just revert to dead consensus, Romney, Ryan economics. I mean, that would be an unmitigated disaster. I mean, I, I'm not sure how strongly I could phrase that it would be a truly, truly unmitigated disaster for the American right and for the American Republic in general there. And I just hope that some folks are paying attention to this historic collapse of Liz Truss and draw the right lessons from that. Uh, so I would just make one brief economic point and then one observation. The, the economic point is that economic growth itself is a function of the people operating in the marketplace. And that's, yeah, it's a truism. But the fact of the matter is, if you don't have a thriving people and a thriving people relies on strong families, strong socializing, civilizing institutions with proper values and principles, you're not going to ultimately have that economic growth in the first place. You know, the economy is a function of the people and not the other way around, even though economies can influence people. And so I think it's just an important point to make that in terms of what the right policy set is going forward. And clearly, all of these Western governments are being repudiated in one way or another with the populist nationalist challenges to them. It comes down to how do you make a thriving people and everything else flows from that. Um, the other the other observation I'll make is we seem to be transitioning into certainly on a relative basis, a high interest rate world. We've been in a world of declining interest rates in the West for 40 years. Interest rates themselves bake in a lot of information about the state of a civilization. Uh, certainly, it doesn't augur positive things when they're rapidly rising. Uh, but in this case, perhaps those economic indicators and economic influences will have a positive influence because a high interest rate world, which we're entering, is going to have manifest implications on a whole slew of issues for governments, the biggest, biggest debtors of them all, for people and beyond. And I think we ought to start looking out at the horizon in terms of what those implications are. Uh, they will probably coincide with many of the themes that we try to emphasize every single week here uh, as being antidotes going forward. Just quickly, I would say this idea that we're departing from some sort of free market utopia is kind of 
funny because the reason these this sort of uh, as, as Rachel said in the intro orthodoxies um, aren't entirely applicable or maybe justly applicable right now are because there never really were free market orthodoxies you know you had tax cuts sure but with like incredible spending elsewhere without ever really cutting entitlements without ever really uh, dealing with the so-called free trade system um, and so you, it's just like ridiculous to want to stick so firmly to like because I believe that we need to cut entitlements desperately. And I think probably all of us agree with that. Timing is a different question, but this is not sustainable. It's absolutely not sustainable. Um, and, and so, yeah, I, mean, I agree with that. But this idea that you, if we don't address it right at this very, very moment, it all collapses. It's like, that's the, been the case for 30 years while you spend a million dollars, um, you know, in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, so it's just, it's, it's a ridiculous sort of idea about what can and cannot be done that is informed pretty much entirely by uh, big money and special interests uh, that are chirping in the ears of establishment Republicans and, and getting them to think that this is the sort of principled approach. And with that, I'll, I'll turn it over to Josh, who I imagine will turn it over to final thoughts. <laughs> well, Emily took the words out of my mouth. So let's go to final thoughts. Does anyone want to get us started? All right, if not, I'll, if just... not, I'll t if, oh, go, no, go ahead, go ahead. Uh, well, I was just going to say really briefly, going back to the opening segment, and you know, this implicates obviously what a Republican Congress would look like. Uh, I think an ideal church committee for the new age. First of all, we ought to be having conversation right now about who are the right personnel to be leading such a committee. And some of them may be outside of Congress members. And maybe there would be like an alternative church committee outside that's also informing the one that's on the inside. But in addition to that, what is the mandate? What is the mission? And ultimately, it has to have legislative remedies with real serious teeth put forth. And what we have to be thinking about in terms of staffing it and also what the what the ultimate scope of it is, is how do you insulate that committee from the pressures of a national security apparatus that you know, if it really feels threatened, will go scorched earth against any and all individuals associated with it. Uh, it's a very important issue. It's a critical issue. Uh, and you have to have people with serious intestinal fortitude willing to do what's right for the country in taking on an apparatus that has become totally unaccountable, uh, which the Durham Special Counsel, I think, sadly, has perfectly revealed to all of us. So uh, I will go in a slightly different direction, but it actually relates to kind of the past two or three segments, kind of economics centricity. So uh, this Wednesday, I flew up to North Carolina to give like a guest like 35, 40 minute lecture for a Duke Econ 101 course, because I, I was actually a Duke e Econ major in a previous life. And it was it, it was a little different than kind of the normal campus speaking I do. It was uh, it was like half substantive, half kind of like how economics has informed my career and so forth. But the point that I made, which really kind of directly kind of gets at what Emily was just talking about when it comes to kind of the right not abandoning, you know, so-called laissez-faire or free market economics or whatever. The point that I kind of made when I kind of got to the portion of my talk that was more about kind of the new right and classical liberalism, there's a very interesting blog post at Tyler Cowen's Marginal Revolution blog this week by Tyler Cowen himself talking about kind of this uh, intellectual and economic divide between kind of the so-called classical liberalism camp and the so-called new right camp. The point that I made to the Econ 101 students who are predominantly freshmen, kind of just learning about like supply and demand curves and deadweight loss and, and growth and Keynes and all this stuff for the first time. The basic point that I made is that the models 
generally hold as far as neoclassical economics and efficiency maximization are concerned. So put another way, when you're looking at a supply and demand curve, when you're looking at kind of taxation, when you're looking at subsidization, the, the basic ideas of, of, of deadweight loss of opportunity costs, none of, none of that is bogus. I mean, those concepts apply. But here's the key point. Here is kind of the key point, I think, and this is, I think, kind of one of the leading distinctions between kind of the three cheers for capitalism, what Orrin Cass would call the free market fundamentalists, kind of the laissez-faire extremists, what I refer to in my speech in Steubenville uh, recently as kind of the zombie Hayekians. The key distinction between kind of the three cheers for capitalism absolutist camp and the kind of two cheers for capitalism that I think is kind of more of kind of like the NatCon or national populist perspective is that I think we understand that we elect political leaders not to simply take economic efficiency maximization and then to kind of put it into a one input algorithm where the one output is economics. Put another way, we uh, we elect politicians who, at least in theory, obviously not in, always in practice, at least in theory, are trained in kind of the virtues and the ancients and their Cicero and their Aristotle. And they are basically able to take various inputs from the economists, from the sociologists, from the anthropologists, from the scientists, from the doctors, and basically try to kind of then put an output that is oriented fundamentally to human flourishing and the common good. This was also obviously one of the leading flaws of President Biden. And I hate to say, you know, to, to as well, uh, President Trump, at least kind of earlier in the pandemic, when they were just basically kind of just spewing out whatever Fauci and Burks and the COVID committee were saying as national policy. I mean, you know, the left likes to say, trust the science, the capitalized science, but no, we don't elect politicians to simply implement the science, the same way that we don't elect politicians to simply implement the capital E economics. So it's a very important distinction to make. Um, I, I mean, it's kind of a rudimentary basic distinction. I mean, at least when, when I spoke at Duke, it seemed to resonate a little bit with, with the freshmen. They kind of, I think, understood what I was getting at there. But that is really what we're talking about fundamentally here. When we're talking about kind of not over extrapolating kind of the lessons from the from the economics in the 2022 midterms, the Liz Trust stuff. You know, even if kind of austerity measures and kind of you know mass spending cuts and mass tax cuts, even if a lot of this looks good on an economics 101 chalkboard, doesn't necessarily always mean that it's going to be the best public policy implemented by a particular politician at a particular time in a particular setting. I once um, heard, a, speaking of economists, I once heard a quote that I just think sums up so much of our modern economics, which is an economist is someone who sees an idea working in practice and asks to see it in theory. Like that is, I think, just kind of the moment. But it sums up to me the moment that we're living in right now with with sort of like the trust debacle, which is, and you're already seeing people say this um, on Twitter, particularly at AI and some other think tanks, well, real you know, real free market economics hasn't been tried, you know, and that's why Liz Truss is failing because, you know, we need to stick with our principles. And it's like, guys, we also have to deal in reality. And and to the point Emily made, like, yes, our entitlements are going to crash at some point. Like we're going to be insolvent. Our debt is a huge problem. But the thing is, we've made a lot of choices or not made the right ones that have led us to this point where we are just woefully unprepared to do all of this now. And, you know, when that was the biggest threat, we didn't deal with it. And now it's a threat, but it's been, I think, outmoded by bigger threats that we're facing. And I would add to that the fact that, you know, all of the sort of global conditions that made it possible for us to ignore uh, the the housing crisis, uh, you know, Medicare, pro, you know, insolvency, the debt, all of the conditions that made it possible for us to ignore that have now come to fruition. And we are facing a global order sea change, right? Like we are talking about 
cr the crack up of the neoliberal system. And it, it's interesting because the, the piece that Josh mentioned, the, the Tyler Cowen critique of the new right vis-a-vis -vis classical liberalism, I think is actually very fair. Yeah. Um, but the, the part he doesn't deal with is the fact that our libertarian economics, which infuses most of the right at this point, was completely captured by the neoliberal order that is now over. And and he doesn't deal with that. Right. Um, sorry, go ahead, Emily. You'll like to say, say something. Well, no, I was just going to I didn't know if you were done because I was going to transition to my final thought right after that. I can be done. <laughs> That's OK. Can you, though? Are you well, ever done? More of an existential question, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I was just going to say, actually, it's a perfect point because you know what the libertarian economics did? They created these more pressing problems, like the fact that we have tons and tons of young girls that are being caught, as we talked about earlier. Like, is it is it exactly their fault? No, but it is this downstream consequence of uh, creating these crony, big, huge institutions that now have so much power. Think about Facebook. Think about Twitter. Think of if they didn't have the concentrated power over our speech that they did, how much more difficult it would have been for the left to normalize some of these ideas about sex, gender, and race, um, how much about these sort of confines of speech that have created huge, huge problems in our culture. They were pushing NAFTA. They were pushing WTO. They were hollowing out communities that are still not recovering. And there are a lot of people who are culturally um, you know, gravitating towards populism that make something like Donald Trump possible when everybody else uh, is, is sort of so worried about propriety. They're looking for a vehicle of destruction, and that is because of the sort of um, myopia of neoliberal economics. And you know that's essential, essential, essential to sort of understand when you're going into a potential new uh, Republican Congress, because uh, it does make it sound, it, it does make it, it puts it in context this question of like what should be number one on the agenda. Um, we now have to deal with those. We have to band aid up uh, the problems that were downstream of the the sort of uh, myopic economics. So that's my final thought. <laughs> All right. Well, on that note, on behalf of Rachel, Ben, and Emily, I'm Josh Hammer. We will see you at the next NatCon Squad.